All right, today we are continuing our seven-week series through the book of Esther. We have been exploring what Esther has to teach us about living faithfully in the midst of a society that increasingly opposes the people of God. The events of the book of Esther take place as the people of God are in exile. They are living at the mercy of a foreign government, the Persian Empire. But as we've said, even under these conditions, God was advancing his purposes. He was preparing the world for the coming Messiah. And God called his people to submit and honor and serve and pray for the empire, to seek the welfare of the empire. But as we've seen over the past few weeks, Mordecai and Esther have had to learn to do that faithfully. They started out hiding their Jewish identity and scheming for power and influence. And that plan worked at first. Esther was chosen as the queen of Persia. But now, a man named Haman has convinced the king to let him annihilate the Jewish people. And this forces Mordecai and Esther out of hiding. Our passage last week concluded with Esther resolving to plead before the king on behalf of the Jewish people. And so she holds a feast for the king and for Haman. And the king agrees to grant Esther her request. He says, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Mysteriously, Esther decides to delay making her request. She, she instead invites them to yet another feast. Tomorrow, I will make my request. And so we pick up in chapter 5, verse 9, as Haman is walking home from Esther's first feast. It says, And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. Haman is feeling good. He's on top of the world. He is, he is very pleased with himself. In fact, when Haman gets home, he assembles his wife and his friends, and Haman proceeds to recount his greatness to them. I'm exceedingly wealthy. I have a very large family. I've been promoted by the king time after time after time. I'm more important and more powerful than any of the king's subjects. Plus, Queen Esther keeps inviting me to these lavish parties. My life is good. Really good. And yet, he says in verse 13, All this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And so Haman's wife says, like any good wife would, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. So Haman plans to execute Mordecai first thing in the morning. Now, Mordecai was certainly disrespectful toward Haman. But we modern Americans would hardly consider that worthy of the death penalty. But if you put yourself in the shoes of an ancient Persian, Haman, Haman had a pretty clear, clear-cut case here. King Ahasuerus, you know Mordecai, right? The, the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Well, ever since you promoted me, he has persistently disobeyed your explicit command and refused to acknowledge my authority. As I'm sure you would agree, we cannot permit a member of your court 
to disregard your command and undermine your government. So listen, I had a gallows made, and I'm asking for your permission to put Mordecai to death. Cool? It's a slam dunk case. So night has fallen on the first of Esther's feasts, and when morning dawns, Mordecai will be executed. However, chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep. It just so happens that the king could not sleep, right? Total coincidence. Of course not. This is providential insomnia. We are supposed to see the sovereign hand of God at work here. The Lord is intervening on behalf of his people. Four weeks ago, I told you to remember two things about Mordecai. The first was that Mordecai was a Benjaminite. And we will learn the significance of that next week. The second was recorded for us at the end of chapter two. Mordecai discovers a plot to assassinate the king. And so he brings it to the king's attention. It's investigated and the would-be assassins are executed. So we'll keep reading. Chapter six, verse one. On that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. Now this is the moment upon which the entire narrative hinges. The great reversal begins here as the king remembers Mordecai. The sovereign hand of God is at work here. In fact, the king remembering Mordecai resembles the God of the Bible remembering his people. God remembered Noah and the waters subsided. God remembered Abraham and he delivered Lot from destruction. God remembered Rachel and he opened her womb. God remembered Israel and he redeemed them out of captivity. When God remembers, deliverance is coming. And the same is true of King Ahasuerus. Deliverance is coming. The sovereign hand of God is quietly working in the background, and it looks like a series of unlikely coincidences. Esther just so happens to be chosen queen over all the empire, above all the other women. Mordecai just so happens to discover a plot to assassinate the king. Haman's genocide just so happens to be delayed by 11 months. The king just so happens to have a sleepless night. The king just so happens to ask for the royal records to be read. His servants just so happen to read from the page where Mordecai's loyalty was recorded. And at that very moment, Haman just so happens to walk in. Verse 6, the king says to Haman, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? I I want you to picture this as a comedy film, 
Okay, I, I, think, I think we're supposed to read it this way to a degree. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. And the king said to Haman, starting to feel sorry for him, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so. To Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate, leave out nothing that you have mentioned. The Lord is beginning to unravel Haman's evil genocidal plots. The Jewish people are by no means out of the woods. Esther still has not even made her ask. And several things remain to be resolved, but the great reversal has begun. Verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the, to the king's gate. Mordecai is restored to his position. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. So, at the end of chapter 5, Mordecai was mourning in sackcloth and ash as Haman rejoiced and boasted about how great he was. And now, at the end of chapter 6, Haman is mourning with his head covered and Mordecai is paraded through the streets on the king's horse. Again, the great reversal has begun. Mordecai is beginning to take his place alongside Adam and Joseph and Daniel. Men who were exalted by the Lord to positions of vice regency, meaning second in command. Adam was second only to Yahweh. Joseph was second only to Pharaoh. Daniel was second only to Nebuchadnezzar. And Mordecai is going to be second only to Ahasuerus. The great reversal has begun. Now, let's look at chapter 6, verse 13. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So apparently the Jewish people had quite the reputation. To oppose the Jewish people was to play with fire. And it was clear to Haman's wife, and wise men, that Haman had roused the God of Israel to act on behalf of his people, which meant that Haman's days were numbered. And as as God's people, we should take comfort and confidence from that. As we read in our call to worship this morning, the Lord is our rock and our fortress and our deliverer, our God, our rock in whom we take refuge, our shield and the horn of our salvation, our stronghold. We call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and we are saved from our enemies. 
Our God has a long history of exalting those of low degree. He has a long history of putting down the mighty from their thrones. He has a long history of destroying the oppressor and bringing justice to the oppressed. And we should, again, derive comfort and confidence from that. But the book of Esther also serves as a warning to the Hamans of this world. There is an important message within this passage to anyone in a position of political authority over God's people. So, for the sake of all those world leaders who podcast my sermon every week, let me say this. We are called by God to submit to you and to honor you. But you are called by God to rule with justice and righteousness. We will give an account to God for the character of our citizenship, and you will give an account to God for the character of your leadership. In other words, you rulers of the world would do well to believe the gospel. Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah, has been enthroned as the King of Kings. He has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. 2,000 years ago, he accomplished the great reversal of all great reversals. Satan erected a gallows. We call it a cross. And he no doubt rejoiced over his own greatness as the Son of God suffocated. But Jesus, the last Adam, had come to crush the head of the serpent once and for all. And so three days later, Satan was the one mourning as Jesus was raised and vindicated and exalted as king. But unlike Adam and Joseph and Daniel and Mordecai, Jesus is no, is no vice regent. He is not second in command. Next to Jesus, the rulers of this world are the vice regents. Every leader, no matter how powerful, is subject to the one true king of kings. Those who rule well, who rule accordingly, will be rewarded. And those who oppress the people of God will be judged. Perhaps in this life, but certainly in the next. Now, the American church is facing opposition, not oppression. But our world is nevertheless full of Hamans. And we should be praying and we should be speaking out on behalf of the hundreds of millions of Christian brothers and sisters who are facing real oppression at the hands of their governing authorities. North Korea, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Nigeria, Saudi Arabia. It's a long list and it keeps going. It's estimated that two-thirds of all martyrs in the history of the church were killed in the 20th 20th century. And things have not gotten better in the 21st. We should be praying for God to humble the Hamans of this world. We should be praying for God to put down the mighty from their thrones. They can rage and plot and take counsel together. But the Lord laughs 
and holds them in derision. They can oppose the church, but they are opposing the bride of him to whom they will give an account. It's not smart. They can oppress us, but the Holy Spirit will multiply us. They can spill our blood, but they will be spilling holy blood and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. They can oppress us, but they cannot overcome us, and they will surely fall before us. We follow a martyred leader. We submit to a martyred king. We worship a martyred God. And in the words of Paul Kahn, sacrifice is always stronger than murder. The martyr wields a power to defeat his murderer, which cannot be answered on the field of battle. This, too, is a great reversal. Christians all over the world are demonstrating a willingness to follow Jesus all the way to the cross. Even when there is no hope of rescue, we always have the hope of resurrection. And in the meantime, the rulers of this world have only to humble themselves, to bend the knee, and to exercise authority as those who will give an account to the true king of kings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that you remember your people. And more than that, you, you act to deliver us. Please do remember your people, our, our brothers and sisters all around the world who live and worship under the authority of Haman's. Deliver them. Jesus, King of Kings, we, we ascribe all glory and honor and authority to you. May your kingdom come. And Holy Spirit, teach us to trust the sovereign hand of God in a world filled with opposition and oppression. We need your help to trust and to persevere. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.